We are continuing in our series, Together for the Gospel, as we look together at our uh, vision uh, and mission statement together. And so I want to draw your attention this morning to Isaiah chapter 58. We read again to you this morning that vision statement. It says to join in gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids as a God-glorifying, gospel-centered, biblically faithful, cross-cultural, justice-practicing Presbyterian church. And this morning, uh, we're going to talk uh, for just a few moments uh, about what it means to be a justice-practicing uh, justice practicing church. And I want to talk about justice from an overall uh, perspective in a way that is uh, maybe even broader than just that word itself. Uh, and so I want to speak from Isaiah 58 for just a few moments. Listen to the word of the Lord. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? You see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day, of, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth, ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him, and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here, I'm, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, 
and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise and glory and honor and thanks for your word. And we praise you for the spirit that you have placed inside of us, your spirit that you have placed inside of us to enable us to hear the word, to receive it, to lay it up in our hearts, to practice it in our lives. We pray, Spirit of God, that you would move over this congregation even now, that their ears would be open, that our hearts would be open, and that we, Lord, would have a zeal to follow after your ways. We pray and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When asked by an expert in the law, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus answered and said, you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If the law of God defines what, it, what God says is just, that is, what is right, then Jesus' words impress upon us the truth that justice at its heart is about right relationships. It's about doing what is right in our relationship with God and doing what is right in our relationships with each other. Indeed, the moral law of God, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, from which we derive in part our understanding of what is just, what is right, can be divided up to show us what we owe to God and what we owe to each other in our relationships. In the text in front of us in Isaiah 58, God underscores his people's failures to pursue justice in their relationships with him and others, saying, yet they seek me daily, delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. The Hebrew word in that text for judgment is the word mishpat, which is a Hebrew word for justice. So judgment here has to do with the justice of God's law, which Israel has failed to keep in full. And how has she failed to keep it? God tells her. When he says to the prophet Isaiah at the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Israel had a problem. It's a problem to be found still in much of the church today, one we have wrestled with historically and one that we wrestle with presently. It's a problem, brothers and sisters, that presents itself as the chief enemy of the pursuit of justice and mercy in the church and in the world. And it is summed up in the phrase, you seek your own pleasure. You seek your own pleasure. 
Here in verses 3 and 4, and again in verse 13, this seeking of your own pleasure is a central issue in God's people's failure to do what is right in their relationship with God and in their relationship with each other. The poor, the immigrant, the widow, the fatherless, the ethnic other, people with disabilities and the like have often throughout history and even within the community of God's people been sacrificed on the altar of the pursuits of our own pleasure. And this is true whether we're talking about our individual pleasure or our corporate pleasures. Our self-interest, brothers and sisters, has been too often the fuel that has ignited our unjust actions toward God and our unjust actions toward each other. So God confronts his people through the prophet, calling the prophet in verse 1 to cry aloud, Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. In other words, Isaiah, don't be quiet about what is happening among my people. Speak up and speak out. John Oswald says it this way in his commentary on Isaiah. He says, religion that has become a formalized mass for self-serving is not a matter for tongue-clucking but for radical surgery. It is nothing short of rebellion which calls for the most dramatic action. And so the God who made his people, or made us his people through grace, the God who would in the course of time satisfy his own justice by giving up his son on our behalf, calls us to a life in which our worship of him is reflected in our commitment to do what is right in our relationships with others, especially those who are denied justice. Justice and mercy for us, brothers and sisters, isn't a trend. It isn't a novel idea. It isn't an option in a list of possible ministry pursuits that we can engage in. It isn't a niche for those churches that really have a passion for social issues. No, justice is doing what is right in all our relationships, especially with those who are most susceptible to being denied justice. It is an identifying mark of the community of God's people. It is an identifying mark of what it means to be the church. Indeed, it is as James tells us in his letter, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained from the world. You want to be truly religious? Then let it be reflected in behavior that upholds what is right that upholds what is just. I want to just take a few minutes this morning to answer the question, what is the shape of this pursuit of justice in our lives together as a people of God? And I want to suggest this morning uh, that this call to doing what is right, what is just, comes with both a call and a reward. A call and a reward. And I want to unpack both sides of that coin this morning So let's look first at the call. And and, and Isaiah puts this in in, in an if-then pattern. And I want to talk first about the ifs, because the ifs are the call. The ifs are the call. In verse 6, he says, It's not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Israel owed its existence as a people 
to God's liberating and compassionate acts on their behalf. God had lifted the yoke of oppression from their necks on countless occasions, from the great deliverance from Egyptian slavery to his deliverances under the judges who saved Israel from all of her enemies to his deliverances under the kings who he had appointed to rule over his people repeatedly over and over and over again. God had shown himself faithful to deliver his people and in that deliverance to provide for their needs. And now in Isaiah, he was promising that a day was coming when he would send a servant who would set her and the nations free from all their bondage. So here's the question. How should a people who have received freedom, a people who when they were in a position of weakness were delivered by God, a people who were being promised that God would one day come and set them free completely from all their enemies through his servant, his Messiah, how should a people who had received freedom act in the world? You see, Israel was keen on keeping the form of religion, the ceremonies, the rituals of religion. The people had no problem with the law when it came to the activity of fasting. They were good at afflicting their bodies by denying themselves food as a show of the seriousness of their humility before God and their desire for God to act on their behalf. They had had no problem showing up for worship They were good at going through all the ceremony and ritual that made worship possible, drawing near to God through this ceremony and ritual to show how serious they were in their belief that God was the true God, crying out to him for help in their time of need. But I got news for us this morning, including myself. God is not impressed with worship services or other religious rituals that don't shape us toward the end of being like him in our attitude toward other people, especially the weak and vulnerable among us. Israel loved the form of religion, but they forgot what the religion was for. And so now God comes and reminds them of what it is for, and, and he starts here in this, in, in this verse, in verse 6, reminding them that, that a people who have been set free by him are to be a people who set others free in his name. But look, look at the action words in verse 6, loose the bonds, undo the straps, let the oppressed go, break every yoke. Israel was to be engaged in activity that mimicked her own story, the story of God's activity in her midst of liberating her from all of her enemies. Yes, her ultimate enemies were sin and death which separated her from God, and our ultimate enemies are also sin and death that separate us from God. But those enemies and that separation from God that they bring produce real-world injustices that God's people who have been free from sin and death by the blood of the Lamb and reconciled to God are now called out by Him to enter into with God's power. Those who have been set free are those who are called to work for freedom in the lives of those among them and around them. John Oswald says it again this way in his commentary. Throughout the latter part of the book, the emphasis has been on the freedom God wants to give to his people. The ministry of the servant will be to set people free from all their bondage. And now Isaiah addresses people who have been theoretically received, who have theoretically received the servant's freedom. 
What are they going to do with it? Are they going to live as free persons, spreading that freedom wherever they go in, their, in all their relations? Or are they using it as a vehicle to exalt themselves at the expense of those around them? The prophet says that if they want to stop something, if they want to abstain from something, why not begin by putting a stop to oppression of every sort? If you want to fast, why, why, why not fast by stopping doing the things that you are doing that are causing other people to be trapped? You want to fast, God says, then let it be a fast from oppression. Show the world that you are serious about your relationship with me, about the freedom that I have won for you by engaging in the work of stopping oppression of every sort among you and around you. I keep hearing the gospel. The gospel. The gospel. The gospel. The gospel. We got to preach the gospel. We got to teach the gospel. We got to explain to people the gospel. We got to preach the gospel. We got to teach the gospel. We got to explain to people the gospel. But you know what I don't hear? We got to live the gospel. Those of us who have been set free have to be a people who live for the freedom of others. There's another phrase, verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Is, if, if you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. In addition to this call to freedom, there is this call for the people of God to show compassion. God turns from people who need to be liberated from some yoke to people who are de deprived of this world's goods. And God doesn't tell us how these folk came to be in the circumstances they are in. Indeed, this is instructive for us. For God didn't just show compassion to Israel when she found herself in these same situations as a result of other people's sins, but even when she found herself in these situations because of her own sin. When Israel was hungry, God fed her. When she was without a home, God sheltered her. When she was without clothing, God clothed her. In fact, when Israel was wandering in the desert for 40 years before God gave her a homeland, we read this in Deuteronomy 29.5, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness, and your clothes have not worn out on you and your sandals have not worn off your feet. God had shown compassion to Israel, sharing the abundance of his creation with her. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the God to whom the whole earth belongs, took of his abundance and fed his people, took of his abundance and sheltered his people, took of his abundance and clothed his people. God says in essence, you want to fast? Good. Fast from using your abundance to only feed you and yours. Fast from using your abundance to only shelter you and yours. Fast from using your abundance to only clothe you and yours. As you have seen me do for you, so I call you now to do for others. And isn't this what we read in the New Testament? In places like 1 John 3, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods, sees his brother in need, and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love not in talk, but in deed and in truth. And pay attention again to the movement. People who have been saved by the gospel are called to activity in keeping with that salvation. They aren't just called to proclaim the words of the gospel, but to show its fruits in their lives through actions in keeping with that gospel. You've received God's love, then show it forth by feeding the hungry, by sheltering the homeless, by clothing the naked. Show it forth by demonstrating the same compassion that you have received from God. This is justice, not because it is necessarily a righting of wrong, but because it is obeying what God says is right. And in God's kingdom, what is right is for his people to embody the same compassion toward others that he has toward them. You want to join in gospel ministry in Southeast Grand Rapids? Then let it be as a church that obeys this call of the Lord. There's another if here. Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. The call side of this coin reminds us that justice and righteousness isn't about pleasing ourselves or even for that matter, pleasing others. It's about pleasing God, keeping the Sabbath holy keeping the worship of God honorable isn't about form and ceremony for form and ceremony's sake. It most certainly is not about going through the motions so that we can spend the rest of our time doing whatever we want to do. The implied command behind God's word to his people to keep from doing your own pleasure or going your own way or seeking your own pleasure is that worship would be entered into out of a desire to please God. That the motivation for drawing near to God would be to discover how we might please Him in all that we are and in all that we do. For Christians, justice and righteousness has uh, to do with, uh, with pleasing God, a desire to give to God what He rightly deserves. And it is in drawing near to God in worship and bowing before Him and submitting ourselves to Him as the Lord and King over our lives and listening patiently and faithfully to the Word and visibly and spiritually taking in the truths of what He has done for us in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism and singing the truths of the Word and, uh, to, to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It is in doing all of that that we come to know what He desires of us and how to put what He desires of us into practice. It is in doing what those 24 elders do when they cast their crowns before the throne, a symbol of their submitting of their own rule to the rule of God. If we don't know how to live justly and rightly in the world, it is because we sit in the pews with our figurative crowns on our head, never casting them before God, because at the end of the day, we are determined to do our own pleasure. We are determined to go our own way. We are determined to seek our own will. We come into the worship of God crowned with our own agendas, crowned with our own pleasure, crowned with our own purposes in mind. But the God who draws us near to him and who draws near to us reminds us that worship belongs to him. He speaks of the Sabbath as his day and as a holy day of the Lord. 
And remember that the Sabbath wasn't simply a day of religious worship, but also served as a reminder that every single day belongs to the Lord, and every single day was to be lived to Him and for Him. The point is this, we were created for the glory of God to live lives that please Him. And our call, brothers and sisters, to justice and righteousness must have this truth as its ground. We aren't living to push our agendas forward in the earth, but to push God's agenda forward. We are living to see what Jesus teaches us to pray to come to fruition in the world. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in these verses, he is telling us that a huge part of uh, a huge part of that is that his people would do justice and righteousness in the earth, especially toward the weak and vulnerable of this world. By the way, idle talk is literally your own words. Don't speak your own words to yourselves on my holy day. Don't come to, near to me speaking your own words, your own purposes, your own will, your own pleasure. Come seeking my words my purposes, my will, my pleasure. And if you do, then you will know that my words call for lives that demonstrate what is just and right in the world. The call here, brothers and sisters, the call here is to look for opportunities individually and corporately to do what God says in these if phrases. It's to work where we can, setting people free from the yoke of oppression, whether that oppression is personal or systemic in nature. It's to examine our own behavior, individually and corporately, to see if there are places where we are engaging in oppressive practices, or engaging in practices that enable oppression to flourish, and then working to undo those practices. It's to look out at our communities to see where oppression may exist around us, and then participate where we can in helping to bring that oppression to an end. And here's the truth, brothers and sisters. There are Christians and Christian organizations who are already doing this work around us who we can join in partnership with in doing this work. I want to tell you this, New City, that God hasn't been waiting for New City Fellowship to create ministry in this regard. Ministry is happening around us that we can join with in doing this work. But here's what it requires. It requires a desire to please God and not ourselves. And it requires a willingness to put ourselves in spaces among the very people whom God calls us to pour ourselves out for. This means that our relational networks shouldn't be and can't be filled with the strong in this world. The materially strong, the politically strong, the educationally strong, the socially strong. Our relational networks have to include the weak. They have to include the poor. They have to include the abused. They have to include the hungry. They have to include the homeless. They have to include the naked. They have to include the prisoner. They have to include the sick and people like that. Part of the reason we don't know what it looks like practically to pursue justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God is because we don't have relationships with people in those weak categories. We don't see the world 
from their eyes because we don't know them and we don't know what's happening to them. The problem for some of us is that we're having conversations about what is justice and mercy detached from relationship with anyone who is experiencing injustice. How are you going to talk about justice when you don't even know somebody who's suffering injustice? When all your relational networks include strong people, how are you going to talk about what is just? Justice and mercy is the act of setting people free from oppression, feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, clothing the naked, protecting the abused, securing in the courts the rights of those who are disenfranchised. And that's our calling individually and corporately. But you can't do it if you don't know them. Amen, people of God. I'll take your quietness to get that you're wrestling with what I'm saying. That's the call. What's the reward? What's the reward? Those whom God has drawn to himself and then called to reflect his image of justice and righteousness in the world will find themselves blessed by God. And God's blessings are bound up in his people following his ways. And notice that I did not say we get saved by doing good works. We're saved by grace, through faith the finished work of Christ. Yet God's blessings to us in this life, blessings that flow out of that grace, are bound up in our following his ways. We don't get to reject God's ways and then demand that he still bless us. And this is essentially what Israel's fasting and Sabbath-keeping amounted to. They wanted to practice the outward forms of worship, and demand that God bless them without doing the good that that worship called them to. And so God encourages them by reminding them of the blessing that flows to those who follow his ways of justice and righteousness. And he puts it in this if-then format, as I said earlier. If you do this, I will do this. And we've looked at the if, so let's look at the thens. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn. and Your healing shall speed, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. The first then has to do with God's presence among us. He says, then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You shall call, the Lord will answer, and you will cry, and he will say, here I am. God promises his faithful presence to his people who draw near to him by pouring themselves out on behalf of those who are denied justice and deprived the material necessities of this life. God had already drawn near to his people by rescuing them from their enemies, forgiving their sin and wickedness and is showing them compassion and steadfast love. And now he promises them that as they mimic him in their behavior toward the weak and vulnerable among them and around them, that he will be faithful to maintain his presence among them. The imagery of righteousness going before them and the glory of the Lord being their rear guard would not have been lost on the people of Israel. Their minds would have drawn back to their journey to the promised land when the cloud represented God's presence and led them by day in the way they should go. And the pillar of fire, which also represented God's presence, led them by night 
They would have been reminded of the presence of God with them, his nearness to them. They would have been reminded of that nearness manifesting itself in God's provision for them and his healing them when, the, when a plague broke out in the camp because of their sin and, and his answer to their prayers when they cried out to him for deliverance from their enemies. They would have been reminded that every time they cried out to God, he answered, here I am. And now he says to them, if you will follow my ways, if you will pour yourself out for others as I have done for you, you will continue to experience my here am I. And and, and as you give yourself to helping others, you will continue to find me to be a very present help to you in your time of trouble. You see, I, I keep hearing Christians moan about a sense of losing influence in the culture and how the culture appears to be more hostile uh, to the church and how, how we're becoming a persecuted entity in the greater culture. And we seem to think that it's primarily because of the, the exclusivity of our message. Perhaps that's part of it. Perhaps that's the hang-up for many in the culture. But I would contend That it's also because in many ways and in many parts of the church, we've sought our own pleasure. We worship God to secure the American dream or to secure political influence or to secure social capital. We treat God like he is a cosmic Santa Claus or a cosmic genie in the bottle. And we rub that bottle with our religious performance to bind God to grant our wishes And perhaps what we're experiencing in our time is the response of our God saying back to us, I'm not here for that. I'm not dwelling among you to give you that. I'm not here to grant your wishes like a genie in the bottle, to make the world in your image. I'm here to save you. I'm here to put my spirit in you that you may walk in my ways, that you might pour yourself out for the good of the weak as I have for you. But listen to the promise of God. Listen to his delight to draw near to us for his purposes. Listen to him as he says in essence, the thing you most want, my nearness, is what I'm most longing to give to you. Yet I'm not here to be manipulated by you, but rather to move you to do my will. I will be present with you as you walk in my ways, and the nations will see and know that you are my people, and they will know that I am God when you do the things that I call you to do. Then share your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires and scorch places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water. Those waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be built up And you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. In addition to his presence, God promises his people who draw near to him and follow his ways that he will guide us in the process of rebuilding what our sin and our rebellion has torn down. Don't miss it. Why was the city in ruins? Why were the foundations torn down? Why were the walls filled with holes through which enemies could enter? Why were the streets uninhabitable? All of this was due not only to the sins of the nations around Israel, but to Israel's rebellion and failure to keep covenant with God. Israel Israel became the hood both because of the enemies around her and because of Israel's sin. Ghettos and hoods don't come into existence by accident. You don't get ghettos purely out of choice. The mean streets don't become mean by themselves. 
they become mean because of the mean actions of those on the outside and those on the inside. The existence of ruin is often due to the ruinous actions of those on the outside and those on the inside. The crumbling of some walls is typically due to the building of other walls to keep people out. The safety of some communities often comes at the expense of the safety of others. I could go on, but you get the point. But watch God. Watch God. Watch God. The ruins that our rebellion has brought into the world, God says he will guide us toward rebuilding, raising up, and restoring. And no, the promise is not, the promise is not that we are going to fix it all by our power and strength. The promise is that he will guide us continually toward that end until the day when he comes and makes all things new. In the meantime, the church is meant to be engaged in the ruins around it. It is meant to be present in those places where the streets are uninhabitable, where the walls have holes in them, where the buildings are falling down literally and figuratively. I mean, have you noticed as you read through the scriptures how often you find God in the places where stuff is in ruins, whether people or places? Just think about that as you read through the scriptures. Take note of how often you find God showing up in ruinous situations in people's lives or ruinous places in the world. And notice that the text doesn't say, I'm going to send you to a well-watered garden. The text doesn't say... I'm going to send you to a well-watered garden, but rather I will make you a well-watered garden. I'm sending you to the ruins, but you will be a well-watered garden in the midst of the ruins. I wish I had. I, I wish you all knew what I just said. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to send you to a well-watered garden. I'm going to send you to the ruins and make you a well-watered garden in the midst of the ruins. You will be a place that people will run to for beauty, for safety, for refreshment, for strength. I will strengthen your bones so that you can exist amid the, amid the ruin and be a help to those whose bones are weak from the ruins that have collapsed upon them. The church has to be honest with itself and with the world and repent that at varying points we have done the opposite of functioning as rebuilders of ruins raisers of foundations, repairs of the breach, or restorer of streets. No, that's not our whole story. It's not our whole history. And we must also rejoice in the ways God has enabled us to be this kind of people for our world. In this life, our story is always going to be one of success and failure, requiring repentance and new obedience. I'm just encouraging us in the places where we have failed to be honest about it, to repent and to walk in that new obedience through faith in Christ. Lastly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The last promise of reward here is found in verse 14. You shall take your delight in the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. That passage made me think of another passage that's found in the New Testament where Paul says this to us in Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The reason that text comes to mind is because it echoes, or maybe you might say fulfills the one that is spoken in Isaiah. The promise is the delight of relationship with God, through which we have become the heirs of the world. What was the promise? What was the promise made to Jacob? What was the promise made to him? What was the heritage that God was promising to feed his people with? It was a promise made to the patriarch when he said to him, I am the Lord your God, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out, like the, uh, spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. Notice that God doesn't say that he will reward his people with the promise of relationship with the Lord or with the promise of the inheritance of the earth or with the promise of the heritage of Jacob. Rather, he says, they will delight in the Lord. They will ride, he will cause them to ride on the heights of the earth and be fed with the heritage of Jacob. The promise is that God will give them joy in the promises they already have through faith in him. He will remind them and impress upon their heart the blessings they have already received by grace through faith in him. God will feed them. He will nourish them on the promises that are theirs in him. You you know what happens when we enter into the worship of God with our hearts open and committed to pleasing him and not ourselves? You know what happens? What happens is that God nourishes and feeds our faith. What happens, what happens when we come into this place and our hearts are open and desirous to please God is that he feeds us on the promises that he has made to us. He gives us joy in relationship with him. He reminds us of who we are in him. He reminds us of the call that he has placed on on our lives and, and, and the promise that he has made to bless us in that calling. Yeah, he does this. In a special way, in the Lord's Supper and baptism, yet in all our worship, God draws us near to him and reminds us of his promises to reaff- and to reaffirm those promises, brothers and sisters, to us. You see, the God who calls us into the world to reflect his image, to follow him by doing what is just and right, does not do so without strengthening us in our faith and empowering us to do it. God doesn't just call us to follow him. He gives us the zeal and energy to do so by the power of the Spirit, who reminds us of the truth of God's promises made to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just so we will have confidence in these promises that they are indeed ours, the Lord speaks through the prophet these words, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. These aren't the words of Isaiah. These aren't the words of another prophet. These aren't the words of your mama. These aren't the words of your daddy. These aren't the words of your friend. These aren't the words of your neighbor. These are the words of the living God. For the mouth of the Lord God has spoken it. And when his mouth speaks it, it's true. When his mouth proclaims it, it's, it's good and done. Amen, people of God. And so here's the call as I close. It's to trust the Lord. That as we give ourselves to the call of doing what is right and just, he will be faithful to all the promises he has made to us.
is to trust that God will make himself present, that he will guide us in working for restoration in people's lives and in communities around us, and that he will give us joy together in him and in the promises he has made to us. And the point here is to trust that as we pour ourselves out for the good of others, God will be faithful to pour out his blessings upon us. We talk a lot about the cost of following Christ, and well, we should, because he tells us that there's a cost to doing so. But he also tells us of the reward of doing so. And the reward isn't just in the life to come. We experience taste of it in the here and now. And this is what God wants us to know and to have faith in. This life isn't all cost and no benefit. The Lord will bless us as we enter into the calling that he has placed in our lives. Can I just tell you this morning? Can I just tell you? The call is to not give in to the lie that we're going to pour ourselves out and all we're going to be at the end is empty, frustrated, disappointed, confused, hopeless. God keeps his promises and will provide his presence, his guidance, his joy as we enter into bearing his image in this world. Amen, people of God. I began by asking the question, what's the shape of the pursuit of justice in our lives? And I reminded us this morning, there's a call. That call, brothers and sisters, is to walk in justice and righteousness of God in all our relationships, particularly with the weak and vulnerable among us. It's a call to work for the liberation of others, to show compassion to those deprived of the world's good. It's a call to do all of this out of the desire to please God. And it comes with a reward, the reward of God's presence, his promise, and his joy as we pour ourselves out to keep this calling. Amen, people of God. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Let me pray for us. Father, we cry out to you this morning that you would enable us to live in such a way that pleases you. You've called us to yourself by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have made us your own. We just saw a visible representation of that this morning as we baptized little Benjamin. We saw, again, a visible reminder to us that you have claimed us for yourself. Those of us who have our faith in you, you have claimed us for yourself. You have made us your own. And so now we pray, Lord God, that you, by the power of the Spirit, would enable us to live for you in this world in the ways that you have laid out for us in this passage in Isaiah 58. I pray that our lives, Lord, would be reflective of the same commitment, Lord, to pour ourselves out for the benefit of others as you have poured yourself out for us. I pray, Father, that we would take notice of the oppressed around us, that we would take notice of the hungry around us, that we would take notice of the homeless around us, that we would take notice of those around us who need clothing. Father, I pray that we would take notice of those who are deprived and denied what is right and just, and that we would be a people who open up our mouths as the prophet Isaiah opened up his mouth and calls the people of God to be a people committed to doing what is right and just inside the house of God and outside of it as well. Father, make us this kind of people, not for our glory, 
not so that people will say, look at them, but so that people would say, look at God. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.